The cliche has always been that Africa is a potential that has lived below its expectation. It's a story told of how a continent abundantly flown with the proverbial milk and honey still wanders in hunger. Yet the African story is not all about gloom. Africa is also a story of brilliance, inspiration, global breakthroughs, innovation and invention, of living hallmarks of a story that is rarely told. A story of an Africa that is changing, an Africa that has changed. Hello, my name is Isaac Koyuedenu Abwa, entrepreneur, thinker and writer. And here on the Change Africa podcast, I bring these stories to life. You're going to have up close and personal conversations with the change makers leading Africa's transformation. Get started. Okay. Thank you very but much. You're going to be hearing baby noise. <laughs> that is that is very fine. Um, thank you very much, Lisa, for joining <laughs> us on the podcast. Uh, I think that. Um, I have seen with in these COVID times a lot of mothers trying to embrace that. I won't call it chaos necessarily, but um, well, the unpredictability of babies in Zoom conversations, and I think it's a beautiful thing to see because that's also part of the life that mothers have to, and we shouldn't want to shun it to the background, like, and have to apologize for it. So I think it's fine. Um, our viewers can understand; they have mothers, so. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, it's it's not it's nothing to apologize about, but it's certainly one of those things that you know you're on a schedule and then it changes. But <laughs> it's okay; <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but I thanks for having to... me. Yeah, it's sure. a pleasure to, to, to speak to you. Um, I want us to start this conversation off with again. I want to start this conversation off with you growing up. Um, I think you grew up in Uganda and tell us about growing up in Uganda and your mother having to, and I have done my research, your mother having to go to Uganda um, and coming back to Rwanda, seeing all the chaos that has, um, I guess, you know, all the mess that had happened to Rwanda because of the war and then being part of the process of contributing to the rebuilding, I guess your mother in that extent, but also how that affected your life and your experiences growing up. I just want you to start off um, for that. Well, um, growing up in Uganda was, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't bad. Uh, we had, um, we were going to very good schools. We lived in good neighborhoods. Um, but early on in our lives, our parents and our grandparents consistently told us that this was not home and that there was a, a home for us in Rwanda, uh, the most beautiful place on earth. And uh, um, someday we'll go back. And so we always had, and we spoke in Rwanda at home, uh, you know, it, it, it was, we were in Rwanda essentially, but just in Uganda. Um, but we assimilated very well into the 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 the, the Ugandan culture. Uh, I mean, I was born there. My uh, siblings were born there. Uh, our parents were the only ones who were not born there, and our grandparents. 
So we were Ugandan for all intents and purposes. But in 1990, when uh, the, uh, the, our liberators got together and decided they're going to make this final uh, push to go back to Rwanda, uh, we were then brought to front and center uh, as as Banyarwanda in Uganda, and you know, were you know a lot of um, a lot of uh, divisive, I would say, divisive language or of the sorts uh, started. Uh, we, in some cases, in some of our schools, um, you know, I remember in one in the school I, I was for my secondary school, the headmistress said, um, you know, after a, a last assembly, all the Westerners stay behind after you know, that assembly. And it was really bizarre. Um, <laughs> and then I went away. I went back to my dorm. I, I said, I'm not, I'm not a Western. Uh, and I, you know, they came back for me. And so they said, you know, why, why aren't you, why didn't you stay behind? This is a violation. I said, well, I'm not a Western. I'm a Rwandan. They said, exactly. You know, <laughs> you're a Westerner. Anyway, um, we, and this continued on until 1994, particularly after April 6th, when uh, the plane of the then president was downed and the genocide began. And, you know, so you started hearing more on the streets, go back to your country, etc. But then you're seeing on the news um, all the horrors that are happening in the genocide. You know, it wasn't a war. It was strictly uh, a genocide that was well planned and executed with the intention of wiping out people. So, I mean, I always hear people say the civil war, et cetera, but really language matters. War means that people are fighting each other. Whereas in this case, it was um, one group uh, led by the government aiming to kill uh, and wipe out an entire ethnic uh, ethnic group. So, uh, you know, which were neighbors, brothers and sisters, husbands, wives, children, et cetera, it didn't matter. Uh, so that kind of thing can't just be uh, uh, undermined. And, and uh, but you know, I was a teenager at that time, and it was it was heavy. But it's not something that I really dealt with until uh, later in my twenties, um, as I came to appreciate the details of what our parents went through and the culmination of that into the genocide. Uh, against the Tutsi and um, what that meant for our country, what it meant for our people and what it meant for me uh, as a person and and how I would contribute to the building of of Rwanda, contribute to the promise of never again and contribute to the continent. So um, I think I grew up just like many other Ugandan teenagers, but um, uh, I think uh, the weight of what it meant to be Rwandan and everything that happened hit me uh, when I was in the U.S. and uh, changed my life. And when I came home in 2007 uh, for my cousin's wedding, uh, having vowed never to come back to this place, um, uh, I, I, I had a renewed sense of who I was and a renewed sense of purpose and, and I felt like I could make a contribution uh, inspired by my mom and my aunt. So, you know, it's tough to unpack in a one-hour conversation, but um, 
I think generally speaking, um, I am who I am today. I have a passion that I have. I, I push myself in every way possible. I strive to uh, be kind and make a meaningful difference in other people's lives, especially because of, um, of, uh, of what our life experience has been and, and how we can ensure that we secure the future for ourselves and our children and for generations to come. That's a rather deep note to start a conversation. <laughs> um, I just want to know, you know, you talk about how you had to come to deal with that. How was that dealing with that and reconciliation process was for you? Sorry, say that again? I said you talk about how you had to come to deal with the, you know, the situation of the genocide mm. in your 20s. How was that process like and how was the reconciliation like for you? So um, the, there was a movie, a famous movie that came out um, in about, I think it was 2007 or so. And um, my church asked me to share about, because, you know, everybody was talking about it and in the U.S. and uh, people were beginning to uh, to actually... Uh, get to know more about Rwanda. Um, and so I was asked to share in front of the church one Sunday uh, about uh, what I knew. I mean, I wasn't here, but I had <clears throat> family members who are in Rwanda and um, many of them, majority of them did not, uh, you know, were killed in the genocide. So, it was during that testimony that <clears throat> I actually could not, uh, I think I froze up and uh, just out of sheer pain and uh, crying so much and I, I, I completely lost it. Um, that was the first time that I was able to come to terms with what happened. I mean, I was a teenager when the genocide happened and so now in my 20s and uh, confronted with people asking questions, I had to uh, then process those feelings and those thoughts. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, we had just spent Easter with my cousins in Uganda, um, you know, that was super close to. And um, they returned just days before the genocide started. And so, Having it was at that time that I processed uh, the loss of my favorite cousins and the reality that I would never see them again. And and they were my age, you know, some of them were my age, others were younger. And just thinking through the horror of what they had experienced. And so it's, um, I don't think it's, these are things that you really process. It's, um, it's a it's a it's a lifetime of of processing, and every April when we are commemorating, we we do go through these motions. Uh, but it's something for me that that stays with me. Any time that I'm taking life, I get stupid and take things yeah, for granted. Yeah, so we're still. Um, it never ends. It's 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 continuous work, but it's definitely. Uh, painful to to think about um 
uh, and I'm sure it's many of us that have to um, to deal with this every day in our own way, um, and especially in April when we commemorate and the, and the memories are so fresh and the and the vision, the the, the things that are, you know the memories that are being shown on television, the stories that are being told. Um, it's something that we should certainly never forget. And it becomes front and center when we see it happening in other places. So we're still processing it never ends. So what does going through all of that, what does forgiveness mean to you in your life? Having to have experienced that. Um, Forgiveness is everything because you really can't live a full life um, and live your best life when you have this uh, anger or pain that consumes you every day, but particularly the anger. So you have to decide to live um, and forgive or you remain in in the pain and therefore stagnates any progress that you that you may make. Uh, So forgiveness is everything. Uh, Without forgiveness, I don't know that I would even be living in this country. I don't think uh, life would be the way it is without forgiveness. Um, I think one of the best things that uh, the the president and the government that uh, started uh, us off in 1994 and focused specifically on unity and reconciliation that was really powerful um, in getting us to live with one another and forgive. And, uh, and even later, the Ndi Umunyarwanda uh, uh, <clears throat> platform where we identify ourselves as Rwandans and nothing but that um, in order to really work towards unity, continue to work towards unity and reconciliation and not division. Um, Without forgiveness, I don't know what our country would be. Uh, I certainly wouldn't be who I am without forgiveness. So um, it's everything. It's everything. You can't live and you can't succeed without forgiving and doing your best to carry on. It doesn't mean that you forget, uh, but it means that you can live. Um, And I, I personally cannot live without forgiveness. Hmm. Now let's just talk about less um, heavy stuff. <laughs> so you're working right say, now. I didn't expect this to be heavy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Um, it's, I think it's the beauty of having random conversations like this is allowing yourself to get involved in the moment and um, unfurling the experiences because. In my personal experience, I feel like allowing yourself to go through those moments again and again, no matter how painful it is, is how you 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 still um, rekindle that empathy that you have, and I think that that goes a long way in trying to help stop things like that from happening from, from ever happening in the world again. Um, but also, as you're saying, to even appreciate the, the 
the humanity that we are having right now and the, the, the ability for us to forgive, to move on and the progress, I think it's, it's, it's that. Um, it's, it's difficult for these things to happen in your life and for you to move past them. But um, in some also weird way, it allows you to um, become appreciative of the life you are having now and the progress that we have now. And it makes you want to do better for life, um, for humanity. And I think that eventually we'll talk about it, but looking at all that you have achieved, you're at a very young age. I think having to have experienced it the way you did um, has to be part of your motivation that has propelled you to want to do better for, for Rwanda and for Africa. Yes, I, I certainly um, um, I am most inspired by uh, making sure that what the what progress we are making is sustained <clears throat> um, is sustained for ourselves. I mean, we only have one Rwanda, <clears throat> we only have one home. Uh, being a refugee is no place is no way to live. Um, and so we have to do everything possible to um, to build a country that we're proud of, to build a people that we're proud of, and to ensure that it stays forever. Um, and also contribute to um, preventing the same or maybe even amplifying the voices where this is happening, uh, serving refugees for whom we are, really one step away from becoming um, from, I mean, you just, it just changes, it changes, it changes how you think. And uh, at least for me, it has, it forever did. Um, but also the example of those who liberated this country, um, our parents who came back to nothing and tried their best to rebuild uh, and to see the fruits of their work, um, is very inspiring. In fact, in 2007, when I came back, um, my mom and my auntie were doing a business where they were working with women um, who uh, some were wives of genocidaires and others were survivors uh, of the genocide, uh, some of whom knew, uh, you know, people who killed their families and, and they were working with their relatives or even as immediate as their wife. Um, seeing them work together and seeing the work that uh, my auntie and mom were doing uh, with over 4,000 women in this country uh, really challenged me. Uh, it was there that I, I started yearning to, to, to do something with my life that could not only impact 4,000 women, but impact the country impact the continent. Um, it seemed like a simple, uh, it's a simple, but it seemed like something that is so unachievable. Uh, but seeing how life has turned out, um, I can only be grateful that I thought that and I put it out there into the universe and it is coming back. It is coming back. Uh, how many years later, 13 years later, and I'm working and I'm working on, um, you know, on initiatives that are continent-wide.
Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, so from 2007, when I dreamt of what I could potentially do um, with my life, um, inspired by uh, my mom's, and to see where things are at today, it's, it's really beyond a dream come true. And uh, I continue to be inspired by Rwandans, and I continue to be inspired by the contributions I've made here, however small. Uh, and 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 I think uh, at the end of of my time here on Earth, I can say that I did play a small part in um, moving the needle in building the Africa that we have into the Africa that we want. Um, so yeah, let's still go into as I said, let's heavy stuff and talk about mm-hmm. your work in financial inclusion. It's very critical to the Africa that we want to build, um, as we have been talking about in the podcast. Um, Certainly, um, post-genocide Rwanda, um, present-day Rwanda, but even on the larger scale in the African continent, financial inclusion is very important. But if no one understands what financial inclusion is, what would you say to that person? Um, I don't know that anyone doesn't understand, but uh, I would say <laughs> <laughs> uh, in this day and age, right? Um, I know. But the, everyone of us wants to grow. Uh, we want to, we dream big for ourselves, whether it's to have our own home or to have uh, quality healthcare or to uh, have quality education and to really have a fantastic future for ourselves and build it for our children and so on and so forth. To do that, you have got to have access to the things that help you grow. Now, access to finance, access to financial services, uh, it's a basic thing. And and it shouldn't be that some of us have all the access that we need and others do not. So uh, what financial inclusion is, is that everyone has access to the financial services that they need to grow themselves. Um, That's financial inclusion. And that is what we should strive to do. And, you know, for us to make the world more equal, it means that we all have equal access to basic uh, base, to the basics that you need to, to be all that you can be. So for those that don't know, They should know that what they have as, you know, anytime they can go to a bank or use mobile money with ease from the comfort of their home, they, we want the same thing for everybody. So those of us who are working in financial inclusion are doing our best to ensure that everybody everywhere. um, And in this, in my case, every African everywhere, regardless of what they do, regardless of where they live or how much they earn deserves the right to have, financial tools and financial services and we can't get to where we need to be until that is a reality so i aim to spend my life um working towards that yeah i would like you to zero in on why should people care okay yeah we should be financially inclusive (laughs) but why should people care (laughs) um i think in this uh age of the pandemic um I would be surprised if someone would say, why should people care? Because I think uh, the uh, COVID amplified, especially the lockdowns, amplified inequality and what that can do 
um, when the countries were locked down, the poorest among us who don't have the digital tools, who don't have the financial tools, who conduct their lives in cash and only cash, and now cash is being frowned upon and every place that they can use their cash is closed. Uh, it was tough. Um, and government had to figure out how to serve uh, those that are underserved or unserved, uh, whether it's buying them food or doing whatever it took to help them out. Uh, the biggest, uh, the biggest demographic in our economy, which is uh, quote unquote the informal sector, uh, the place where we buy our food every day, where many people buy their clothes, where we get basic services, could not move. <laughs> They, they just couldn't move. And uh, it was difficult to get food. It was difficult to uh, for trucks to move food from the countryside to the city. It was difficult for many things. And the biggest number of people among us, um, I think, suffered the most. Um, so what will, that, what will then happen when you're living in your lofty, place and have easy access, easier access, I should say, because everybody really didn't have it easy. Um, what would they feel? What would they do? Uh, you know, that's how you hear of robberies increasing or whatever it is for people who are trying to live and trying to get by. You know, many of our people and uh, what we call hand to mouth uh, because whoever they work for pays them cash every day. All of a sudden, that is not there anymore. By the 21st of March, for instance, in Rwanda, when the country shut down, that was it for those, you know, for those people who go out for casual labor every day or whatever it is that they do, uh, or they're, they're in the markets helping us to shop, or they're the cashiers at a small shop that is now not an essential service. Uh, whereas the rest of us could get on an application, order food, um, order medicine, order whatever it is, book uh, if we needed to truck to move because we needed permission from the police in order to get out, we could do it easily. How about those who did not have that? Who are the majority? We cannot build an Africa that uh, we cannot you know, secure our future when that level of um, exclusion is uh, is big, and if we think that we're going to live in our uh, mansions and big fences uh, and be protect- shielded from this, I think it's it's such a we'll be in for a rude awakening, because as soon as you step out the gate, you are reminded of the reality that many of us do not have access. As soon as you step out into uh, the rural areas, you're reminded of that, and I don't think you should you can sit comfortably. Um, seeing all of that. I don't think you can, uh, I don't know. I don't know how people cannot care. That's just just what I think. But I think every day that you get out of the door, you're reminded of uh, the inequality that there is. And and I I think, you know, you don't have to do something about it, but at least you can care that someone is doing something about it and do whatever you can uh, to support that or, uh, speak up or whatever it is that you can do. So I think people should care because 
uh, inequality impacts all of us. Uh, and uh, it's just, you just can't sit comfortably when people are not, uh, are not doing well. <laughs> that's just, that's just, that's just. I, I, I really like how you've taken us through your journey. I feel like now, if there's anybody who didn't understand the need for um, financial inclusion, they would, hopefully by now, um, taking us through very detailed, I guess, storytelling of the lives of people who are otherwise excluded from the financial services and how that affects people. But I want to still push a little further and actually that now, let's just hope that COVID disappears. In a post-COVID world, why would it still be necessary for people to have access to these tools when they don't necessarily live in um, spaces where they are not confined from having, say, um, cash in hand services. Yeah, so COVID <laughs> uh, is not going anywhere, just like the flu. Um, we can get, you know, just like we get vaccinations for polio and dysentery and all of that, it's going to be the same thing with COVID. <sighs> Isaac, I feel horrible. I know. Yeah, <laughs> Continuing this conversation. Yeah, but I know it's the impact of the vaccinations. It's not that she's hungry or whatever. She's she's just uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> would, you, would you like to um, go to her before? Um, she seems to be quieting down. But, you know, it's, it's been like this. It's, it's, it's been like this since yesterday. So if it was any other ordinary day, I would get up. But um, my mom has her and I can see her from where I'm sitting. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, if it's, I need it's, to it's interesting. Away, it's interesting. Did you feel always this way when, um, did you always feel this way when you have not given birth? I don't, I, well, first of all, I don't know if this is your first child. Yes, yes, I absolutely did. I just, I mean, I just, this is my first child. Um, but, um, uh, as I mentioned, the way you grow up and when you see good examples, as I saw in my, in my auntie and my mom, uh, when you see all around, at least in Rwanda, when you see the reality of truly efforts to build a better future, build a better present in order to have a better future, you can't help but be inspired. At least Rwanda has been my biggest inspiration in so many ways. Uh, right from 1990, when the liberation struggle uh, started um, all the way into 1994, but especially post-1994 and how people can come together and build uh, something and how each one of us has a responsibility to uh, ensure that we are living side by side, ensure that we are developing together, uh, I think there's something remarkable about that. So to be in a place where many people are working for the same thing, uh, my own uh, uh, role models are doing exactly that in the lives of thousands of people. Yeah. It, I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me. My siblings <laughs> don't feel the same way, but... Uh, I've, I've, I'm pretty sure uh, people I, do. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I can one... say that since 2007, um, uh, when I saw the reality of of building up something, uh, building up people. Uh, I, I, I was inspired then. So we were talking about financial inclusion and we were talking mm. about why it's important, why people should care, even in the post-COVID world. Um, mm. Now that you gave us that framework, 
how important, again, are digital tools and, for example, this move into um, digital currency um, relevant in that movement? Um, and I want to take us through the journey that you have, I think, since Visa, Ecobank, and now with the Better for Cash Allowance, Alliance. Um, how is that important and how has that journey been true? And what's the progress that you've seen throughout that journey? Okay, so for me, the my context uh, of being passionate about financial inclusion is very much around Africa's financial independence, right? So the more of us are included, um, uh, the more we transact digitally, particularly. Um, I'll, I'll give an example. There's a time, um, I think it was 2014 or so, I attended the monetary policy statement for for Rwanda. And the data during that time showed that Rwandans had withdrawn um, 406, 406 million dollars from the ATM. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the transact what was transacted at the horse was a I think a quarter of that. Uh, and so not a quarter, less than a quarter of that. And so I looked at the same time how much aid had been borrowed that year, and it was about three hundred and something million that had been gotten from uh, foreign partners uh, as part of our national budget uh, for development. So in my mind, I thought, okay, so less than 30% of Rwandans are financially banked. Okay. Um, at that time, even less were, were financially included. And if the few of us who have cards can withdraw that much money that is greater than how much extra we need from outside partners. Now, if we flipped the number of how much money had been withdrawn in cash and uh, what had been paid for at the the POS, what would we still need to go out there and borrow uh, money from abroad, right? So when you look at the numbers, uh, I mean, Africa's uh, GDP, uh, about 60 to 70% of that is consumer expenditure. And that consumer expenditure, over 90% of that is conducted in cash. But when you look at how much we borrow from abroad, it's, it's much, it's much, you know, it's much less. So I thought to myself, okay, so if we mobilize every small amount that we have, whether it is someone selling coffee brookman on the side of the road or a big supermarket and or any service provider, if at least 50% of those transactions were digital, what would our economies look like? What would our borrowing look like? Uh, I believe that just like uh, developed countries do, uh, they borrow locally for the most part. They don't need to go abroad and borrow in foreign currency. So if Africa as well mobilized the small pennies that we have 
uh, the small and big pennies that we have, uh, the Nairas and the CDs and the Rwandan francs and the shillings, if they were in our national treasuries, would we still need to go out there and borrow uh, uh, in foreign currency that is of high interest rates that our children will probably still will be paying for later? So my, uh, as, I, as I go through the motions of striving to be financially independent as a person, I believe it's the same thing as what our countries and our continent go through. And so for me, the push for digitization of payments doesn't only stop with access to financial services for everybody uh, such that we can all grow. But as we are growing, we're also growing our continent. As we're growing, we're also building our dignity because we can stand on our own two feet and fund our development. We don't need to depend on the kindness of others uh, uh, at, at the expense of our dignity in many ways because, you know, you always hear people criticizing you for for going out there to get loans or, or to get aid. Uh, so for me, the matter of independence and dignity for, for Africans, uh, uh, I think also drives my quest for, uh, for, 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 for financial inclusion and for digital payments. Uh, <clears throat> the more included we are, the more people transact digitally, the more our treasuries have monies that can be used to fund our development that we don't have to go out there and beg for, not beg, but essentially if, if you're getting donations, right, they call them donor funds, uh, or we call them now, I think, development partners, right? If we go out there, uh, uh, and it's good to have partners, but it's also especially good if those partners are in the country. Uh, I would love to see a time when uh, the central bank of, uh, let me see, uh, in Ghana, uh, you know, EcoBank Ghana has given the government a loan of $200 million to do particular, you know, particular thing. Not, you know, the government of Ghana has gone to a bank in another country outside of Africa to borrow money for development. So um, I think our sustained development, our financial independence, our individual independence and financial independence uh, and, and, and continent independence, I think, go hand in hand. And for me, uh, it's the, that's the work that I love to wake up every day for. Okay, so can you tell us about how that work is even being done at a bigger scale at the Better for Cash Alliance that you currently work at? So the Better Than Cash Alliance is such an interesting um, uh, I love even the name, just just the name, uh, but I think what we what, uh, what we strive to do is to um, advocate for solutions for everyone that give them value that it's greater than cash, right? Because as it is today, it's tough to convince somebody why they should go digital, right? Because many of us are accustomed to counting our cash. We want to see it in our hands. We want to keep it at home. You know, it's something that we find comforting. Um, but if things changed and all of a sudden, just like it was in COVID, uh, 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 people were frowning upon cash, you couldn't easily access that cash if you conduct your life in cash. Um, majority of, of us bank in circles. Uh, circles are largely cash-based. And they had even greater 
limitations on how much they could transact. Transacting digitally, we didn't really have limitations of how much you can transact every day. But when you were getting cash, there were major restrictions on how on, on how much cash you could get. So uh, in addition to that, uh, when you're conducting your life in cash and you need to uh, 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 grow yourself, um, uh, what reference do you have for a financial institution to give you the funds that you need maybe to pay school fees or to build a home or to expand your business, etc. Not much can happen with your cash-based transactions. So for better than cash, when we say that, you know, we need to have responsible payments everywhere, we need responsible payments, meaning that they're easy to access, right? That I can easily access my, my funds, that I can pay, uh, my funds are safe, uh, uh, it is affordable uh, and as affordable uh, uh, as, 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 as cash, as secure as cash in many ways, as many people think that cash is more, is more safe. Whatever it is that people feel about cash, any solution that is out there for people to use, it has to provide value that is better than cash if we're going to see a transition from cash to digital payments, which are safer. If we're going to see a transition from uh, cash-based wages to digital wages, if we're going to see, I mean, there's so much that can happen um, uh, uh, that we will have to convince people that this is better than cash. And there are those who don't, if you go to Zimbabwe, I'm sure Zimbabweans will tell you, I want my cash. I don't want, I don't want digital. Uh, but because of their economic woes, um, digitization has helped Zimbabwe try and uh, stand. Imagine, I can't imagine what life would be like uh, when when they were very, you know, you, I think you remember the stories out of, of Zimbabwe with, with yeah, the cash-based cash systems. And, and the economy is now largely digital. And they're able to continue in spite of sanctions, et cetera, largely because of uh, digitization. So how do we, uh, how do we um, extend the same to Africans in such a way that when push comes to shove, when the whole world shuts you down, shuts you out, you can still be able to stand because you've digitized payments. So for better than cash, we don't, we will not say that uh, this solution is better than this solution. We will not say that this institution is better than institution. However, we are advocating for whatever solution we give to our people, it has to bring them greater value, uh, greater security, greater safety um, uh, than cash would so that they can choose it and be able to transact with it every single day. And we see that in several places where wages are being digitized for women, uh, 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 for cocoa farm farmers. We're trying to, if you follow what's happening in Ghana, uh, how much money is lost uh, just from cash transactions within the cocoa industry and how, what digitization can save um, uh, the country. The, 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 you know, Ghana has a cash light agenda and uh, the current administration is really working so hard to ensure that um, uh, there is greater digitization to continue uh, harnessing the potential of development that comes from 
from digital from digital business, whether it's cost savings in the, the, the uh, cost savings for the government, cost savings for individuals, uh, curbing of corruption, greater accountability, etc. Uh, those are all the benefits of digitization. And I think our people deserve that. Um, we are largely where we are because of so much that we don't see. And I think digitization helps to get there. And the most important part of, of digitization is obviously what matters to us, which is the buying and selling of goods every day. Someone is buying something every single minute. Um, someone is selling something. So if that could happen digitally or if at least even 50 or 60 or 70 percent would happen digitally i think our economies and our people would feel the difference uh in the speed of how um, development happens for us yeah i think that's that's interesting you know i see currently at least as the status quo looks like that we have two ends or we have one far end where there are all these heap benefits for example transparency is very very crucial mm-hmm. and we see um Platforms like Bitcoin trying to give that mass decentralization and transparency possible. And then we see the other end, the costs that currently is involved in online transaction. How do we move from that end and come to a middle where we truly have that better than cash um, and the line and principle that you are trying to um, preach here? And that's why we say responsible payments, right? So they can't be responsible payments if they are very expensive. They can't be responsible payments when most people cannot afford. I mean, the, when most people look at it, the cost, there's no cost to cash. Even though the cost for cash is, is greater, the printing of cash, the distribution of cash, the securing of cash is generally more expensive for countries. Um, it doesn't mean anything to that person uh, who is selling the coffee brokeman. I'll continue talking about coffee brokeman because... By the way, where did you hear coffee brokeman from? I don't want to be, <laughs> come back to that. <laughs> you know, getting to uh, getting someone selling coffee brokeman on the on Lagos Half to accept Ecobank Pay is probably one of my most, my proudest, proudest achievements. And on um, why particularly I, coffee brokeman did you... Enjoyed it was my favorite Ghana. snack. It, it, it <laughs> broke me going. So I was in Ghana for two years when I joined Ecobank. Um, okay. I had the, the privilege of serving alongside my colleagues to to get uh, Morganians to believe in digital payments. And so we went out. We would go out on uh, what we call DG, I think DG walks. Uh, whether it is the market I saw that. I saw that Makola. in Ghana. Yeah. Uh, so whether it's Makola Market or Lagos Avenue, uh, we would go out. So. Uh, my colleague and friend, Oreku, uh, uh, you know, knew how I obsessed about Coffee Brook Man and the peanuts. It was it, <laughs> something, what I enjoyed the most. Uh, we went out and we went out to Lagos Avenue, which is near University of Ghana, um, to get people to, 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 to accept these payments. And so when we went to this lady, uh, the ladies who were selling um, later to check on them and see how things are going, just, you know, her saying that, you know, I'm happy that I don't have to count any change anymore. Um, I can order my my cocoa from wherever I am. Uh, you know, she was happy at the difference that it was making in her life. Now, should she need a microloan based on her cells, she would be able to get it as a result of that payment solution that she has, where money is instantly going into her account. And... Um, 
she can transfer it to mobile money, she can transfer it to a mobile account, or she can get it as cash if that is necessary. But she was so happy at how life was much easier with digital payments and that students, you know, many of them had the Ecobank mobile app and therefore it was very easy for, for her to sell uh, her, her broke man. And so uh, when that happens, you just think, okay, so if she can believe and she can find value, that's someone who has actually found value that is better than cash, right? So that's what we talk about when you talk about better than cash. She mm. feels more secure. She's doing more business. She doesn't have to look for change. She's able to borrow when she needs it to keep her business going. And then from then you see the person selling coconut as well on the side of the road doing the same thing. And you go to Nigeria and it's the same thing. You go, you know, uh, I visited several countries as I was looking after this uh, merchant's payments business uh, for the bank in 33 countries uh, and going and seeing the same reaction uh, across markets was really, uh, it, it encourages you to believe that this is possible. So that feeling that that lady on Lagos have selling her roasted plantains and peanuts, which I loved so much, finding value in a digital solution, I believe everyone can. And it is something that really our governments must strive to do. Uh, and and that, you know, that I intend to be doing, especially during this uh, uh, work at the Better Than Cash Alliance, where I'm working with uh, with governments and regional bodies, especially to really get this to be the norm and not the exception. Okay, so I think that everyone listening to the podcast now should be totally sold on using mobile money and digital services. By the way, I do use all digital services as much as possible. But I have to convince a lot of people, for example, yesterday particularly, I had to come home and ask for money from one of my neighbors to pay for um, the fare of the taxi I use because the guy just won't accept mobile money, <laughs> which is which is difficult to deal with. I mean, but I, as much as possible, I try not to use um, cash because it just reduces the spending that you do. Um, yeah. The indiscriminate spending that you do because now... Um, well, it just happens that you are, your money is in a place where, I guess, when it is cash, you are just more um, careless in the spending than um, when it is um, in, in any of those digital tools that we have come to love so much. Um, I, I want us to. I mean, that's very good. So you should definitely preach the gospel. <laughs> but I know how difficult it is to convince yeah. people. I mean, it's, it's essentially what we do on a daily basis. Um, yeah, but we shouldn't certainly give up the fight. So in 2015, uh, you had this conversation um, where you were talking about Ms. Geek, but I think what I found very interesting, and I'll come back to Ms. Geek too, is that you were exploring the idea of um, remote work and how it is very crucial um, for employers to want to embrace that. And I'm saying that it was quite a bold thing to have said in 2015 how do you see that COVID has moved the needle for institutions to want to um, embrace working remotely? Because I think in the biggest sense, that is all part of the digital inclusion that we are trying to preach. Yeah, I mean, I think COVID has been the great accelerator of digitization. Anybody that was opposed to it uh, found themselves yearning for it and trying to scramble quickly 
to get access to it, to digitize. Uh, and I think more so for businesses who are most impacted or even governments that uh, we may have been slow to digitize, uh, to digitize services. Um, um, and so when you see, when I look at Rwanda, that was already on the path to digital uh, and how much easier things were as a result of that, you know, we could get access to at least those, many of us have a mobile phone, right? I think almost every household in Rwanda has a mobile phone. So just being, just being able to have a mobile phone, you could receive SMSs from government that were telling you about what's going on with COVID, uh, lockdown measures. Um, uh, it was, then you had radio. I mean, radio is, a, is it stands out as the most um, available uh, digital tool, I should say, a communication tool that is out there. But now it's, you know, it was um, it was made easier when also as messages could go out uh, on phone, people would listen to to the radio on their phones, etc. So I think COVID accelerated the those who accelerated the, the the digitization agenda. Those who are opposed had no choice. Uh, if I look at how we did business hours in Ecobank at the time. Um, you know, where meetings had to be physical in so many ways. Uh, and now here we are, the CEO is visiting countries on Zoom, uh, sorry, on Teams. Uh, we're having 10,000, you know, a meeting, a staff, a town hall with all staff, over 10,000 people, all congregating online and, um, and, and, and being able to talk about business. Uh, the cost savings that came from people not needing to travel, whether it is in government or the private sector, it's incredible. But the pain for those who did not have digital, I go back to those who sell our fruits and vegetables, for whom I hope to see a quick solution uh, uh, happening for them to be able to sell. Now they were called, you know, they don't have phone numbers for their customers. They didn't have um a way to be paid, many of them had resisted even mobile money. Now they got mobile money. Uh, if they were lucky and a customer called them or came to them, then life was easier. Markets had to operate at 50% and in shifts. So the, you know, the business landscape changed for the majority of our people and caught them off guard and they suffered the consequence of declined sales um, uh, because they don't have any contact of their of uh, the, any contact with their customers, they don't have an easy way to get paid, and they don't have an easy way to access their uh, their suppliers. So when I think about what I hope to see post pandemic, is that whether the truck that is carrying uh, let's say cabbages from upcountry, bringing them into the city, that by the time they leave that farm the farmer has been paid digitally. If the farmer owns the truck that is delivering to the market, when they get to the market, everyone that is buying the cabbages to, to resell will be doing that digitally. And on, you know, the customers who will be buying those cabbages from the individual uh, vendors will also be doing that digitally. I know it is possible. COVID made it very clear. Um, additionally is the, the you know the ability to work from anywhere i was working at the headquarters in togo i couldn't be there because of the realities of, we didn't know where the pandemic was going and i was expecting my child so uh, i came to 
Rwanda, but I was still able to be able to be fully present and serve the best of my capacity as long as it needed I needed to do to do so uh, from the comfort of my home uh, in, in Rwanda. So even the mindset of management changed, uh, changed, uh, changed and you know we don't need to be you don't have to be in office and therefore now you know uh, whether it's it's ecobank or any other institution they're thinking how do we take advantage of these cost savings whether it's in the real estate electricity the water that that we drink the uh, the uh, the flushing all that flushing that happens the elevators every cost saving that happened during covid how do you sustain it by working smarter uh, and, and digitization is the only way we can do that. So as organized institutions are doing this, the informal one, uh, the informal traders are also doing the same thing. Uh, and we all are working towards the same thing, which is how do we reach our customers better? How do we continue to, 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 to make money? How do we survive the next lockdown? As we see second waves and third waves in the West, we worry about the same thing. If we were to go through Another lockdown, I think many people will be better prepared in terms of tools to reach their customers, but there still remains a lot of work to do. And that is where uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I think governments will have to invest, governments in the private sector will have to invest heavily in getting everybody to digitize, especially those micro, uh, small, medium uh, enterprises that are not digitized the government services that are not digitized, we need to be thinking about uh, sitting at home, calling a doctor's line, getting diagnosed from wherever I am. Uh, we need to be doing so many things, uh, whether it is house calls or whatever it is, uh, powered by digital, it's something that we have to do. I think for Africa, the uh, ubiquity nature of a mobile phone, whether it is smart or not, and it being able to deliver services, is one of our biggest advantages. And I really hope that it's something that we can uh, harness and continue to extend to every corner in order to um, help the recovery uh, from the impact, economic impact, personal impact of COVID-19, and especially to build for the future. Hmm. Thank you very much. Um... Now, I'd like us to talk about women in technology. I know you've been working in the tech industry, especially the financial services technology industry, for more than a decade now. And then you started Ms. Geek. But I want to be sure, did you start Ms. Geek with your sister? No. Uh, uh, my sister won Ms. Geek in 2015. Ah, okay. Um, but uh, I didn't start with her. Um, in fact, I didn't even come up with the idea of Miss Geek. Uh, mm-hmm. My colleagues in Girls in ICT uh, uh, came up with this idea, and um, I uh, I was on board to uh, ensure that it ha- that we started well and we succeeded, uh, and it has gone on to be bigger than what we expected. Uh, we wish the impact would be greater, but we're certainly proud of what mm-hmm. has been achieved until now, and I can only. T- uh, hope and trust that um, uh, it's only going to get better, especially in this uh, post-COVID uh, thinking, in this new normal where digital is not something that you have to preach. It's something that everyone has to do. 
uh, I look forward to seeing what um, the new leadership of girls in ICT is going to do. And, and I, I, I just can't wait to celebrate all the milestones that they'll be coming up on. So Miss Kika was our small way of trying to get more uh, girls interested into science, technology, engineering, and math, um, to see value in digitization, to see that your life doesn't have to stop when you become a mother because of digitization, uh, uh, of, of, of careers in STEM, sorry, uh, that you can work from anywhere, that you can create solutions to your own problems or to community problems uh, with technology. I mean, with technology, really, the world is your oyster and you can go out there and dream it and invent it and um, uh, innovate around it. Uh, everything is possible. Uh, you just have to believe that you can and you uh, can see examples of those who are doing it and you never give up in achieving that that you want to achieve. And this ICT, you know, is, is really just a tool that you can uh, use to do anything. Whether it is to learn how to cook a meal, um, how to put together a, how to maybe fix your car, or how to uh, program a solution that can help solve various problems. Etc. These are all things that technology does, and we want our, our girls, especially those in rural areas who do not have these examples, to see us and see themselves in us, and be able to dream and go on and pursue uh, what it is for their parents to see us as well, as much as they may be working on the farm, to see that there is room for technology in making their life easier on the farm. So we appreciate that. Uh, a lot of uh, our girls, uh, especially in the rural areas, do not have examples of, of women in tech or women in STEM. And so our goal with the Miss Geek Umbrella and with our mentorship program was for girls everywhere uh, to see themselves in us and to even see bigger things in themselves as a result of the power of technology uh, and everything that can come with having a career in this in this sector and they shouldn't be afraid to to be what they want to be uh, they shouldn't think it's a it's a career for their brothers or their fathers um they should shouldn't let anyone intimidate them into thinking that it is not something that women do and we're here to show that it is possible and we are here to support them in whatever their endeavor is we may not have the funds to do it but we certainly will do everything possible to mentor them, to connect them to our networks to uh, for them to achieve. And so it's been good to see what uh, 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 what has come. And I think even bigger things are ahead, especially in this post-COVID world. Um, I would like to ask you that, what do people not get about, I mean, in experience, what do people not get about girl-child education and more specifically girl child education in science um so i don't have that personal experience of um people not getting uh because i was raised in uh, in a family that uh, just supported what it is that you want to do but um i remember in our first mystique we had a lady who was brilliant. Uh, she was doing applied applied sciences, applied engineering at the university. Uh, she had the best solution, uh, you know, one of the best solutions. And you know, she couldn't really communicate. Uh, but by the end of that, she she was able to communicate that. 
she could have, she even had a prototype, but she got married and everything stopped. <laughs> and she decided that, you know, first she was told that, you know, she needs to focus on her family, but she's a brilliant girl. Uh, and she had a fantastic solution uh, that could work in helping traffic, whether it is uh, reducing speeds on bicycles or motorcycles or a car. I think if she had gone on to do amazing things with that solution, probably it would be in a, a mainstream in Rwanda at this point. Um, the people that uh, put that in her mind uh, and for her to uh, give in to that, I, of course, I don't uh, fault her for it. Everyone makes a choice. But I wouldn't want for more girls with brilliant ideas, with such bright futures uh, as engineers to feel they cannot do it because they have become, they have gotten married and have become a mom. I would love for them to think that, okay, I'm married. I am a mom. I can still continue to uh, innovate. In fact, I can innovate enough and do everything that I'm doing from home. But they don't have to uh, think that this is something that men do. Uh, or men alone do that they have they have the solutions and they can um, they can build them and they can and nothing nothing not marriage not motherhood can stop them from building solutions in fact uh, it should it can inspire even more and just being able to be at home uh, with access to technology uh, your mind continue can continue to work uh, your customers can find you at your home your child can learn from you and continue to, you know, grow and excel in your village. Uh, you know, in whether in Rwanda, we're in villages, whether in your city or in the rural areas, we're all in a hundred household villages. You can be a beam of light uh, to the girls in your village about what is possible and you can show them that they can, um, de you know, develop anything. They can do anything. Um, so, uh, for those who don't get it, the only way to do it is to show them. Um, and, um, I think in this post COVID world, this young lady who back in, I think it was 2014, um, could have done so much more, um, if she really, uh, you know, she could have done so much more with that solution, uh, had she stayed on and she would have inspired even more people uh, you know but here we are so we have to continue doing this until these the thinking that just because I've gotten married and had a child life stops shouldn't continue if anything uh, with technology you're able to innovate further so I don't think those who don't get it can be their minds can be changed outside of showing them that it's possible. And that's why we have to keep uh, up the conversation. We have to keep being visible. We have to keep showing, doing Miss Geek <laughs> and hopefully getting these girls to continue building these solutions out uh, to inspire more, more Miss Geek. So um, I don't believe so much in telling people. I believe more uh, and mostly in showing them um, that impossible is nothing. I don't know if you, I don't know if you are familiar with the story of Einstein's first wife, but Einstein had a first wife. She's called Mileva, 
And she was also a brilliant scientist, had tremendous potential, probably could have been um, a par with all that became of Marie Curie, um, who is one of the most um, distinguished women scientists of all time. But because she gave birth first time, second time, third time, um, she was consumed by that. I know now you are a mother. Is there a compromise when women become um, mothers that um, they have to make because of their children and that affects their ability to reach the highest heights? And how do we help take that out of, if there is actually, the way for them? Yeah, for them. Um, I don't think there is. I think motherhood uh, amplifies the fire to to build and do more. Um, granted, you have uh, uh, to nurture life from day one until whenever uh, God calls you home, um, if that is a thing. Um, it doesn't, at least for me, it hasn't. If anything, it has really... Uh, ignited the fire to do more. So there's no compromise, but, you know, I, I, I have to acknowledge my privilege of being uh, educated, uh, having the flexibility of working from wherever I am, um, uh, knowing that this reality isn't the same for everybody else. Okay. So um, I can't say that what what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and how I don't feel like I'm inhibited, but rather uh, more inspired. Empowered. Yeah, is the same for the next person. But what I do hope is that you know we are all women, we are all mothers. Is that um, as if there there is anyone like me who feels that they have to stop things because of motherhood? Hopefully, they'll see. Uh, an example in me, uh, for those who don't lead a life like mine. Um, in fact, I, I think the, the greatest example that motherhood doesn't stop you is these women entrepreneurs that are on many street corners and in many markets. You find them with their child uh, hustling very early in the morning, uh, going to the markets to get those vegetables and take them to their store, wherever that is, and, and be able to sell with a child on their back and the fruits on, or vegetables on their head, or they're in the market, they're breastfeeding their child. I think they're, the, they're such a fantastic example that those of us who have even more, uh, who are more empowered in terms of uh, working tools in terms of working wherever we, we you know, flexibly and, and in offices and air conditioning and whatever it is, uh, there's no greater inspiration than that, right? So I think uh, already we have great examples in women on the farms who are, you know, who are growing our food, who will take their child to the garden, um, who, you know, I mean, they're already showing us that it's possible. So really, uh, motherhood doesn't stop anything. If anything, it inspires you to do even more. Um, and I hope that our girls can grow up thinking and believing and knowing and living out the fact that um, nothing can stop you from achieving what you want to achieve. Uh, and a child is a beautiful uh, blessing in terms of realizing 
what you should spend your time on and what you shouldn't. And, and the pursuit for greatness is, is something that uh, doesn't stop. Uh, so whatever it is that you want to achieve, you can achieve it whether you're a mom or you're not. Uh, um, uh, there is no compromise that is required. You just have to plan your time and um, uh, make sure that you invest more time in nurturing a good, kind human being than, um, uh, you know, th- th- that will contribute to the world. Oh, my poor child. That will contribute uh, to making the world uh, a, a more beautiful place than, than she found it. So, yeah, I mean, year for motherhood and and being unstoppable. I just wanted to know that you you spoke about, well, it was just a small post on your blog. Um, and then you talked about wanting people to, you were asking feedback from people about marriage, I guess, and the fact that people that are ambitious women um, have just two scenarios. Either they have super supportive husbands or they have no husbands at all. And you were blessed to have the, the former that is a super supportive husband. What is so difficult about the woman experience that men don't understand? <sighs> that is a packed question. Um, I mean, the reality is, you know, there are many, there are many women who are, um, are not supported by their spouse or their families tell them that they're too ambitious or they can't do this, they can't do that because of ABCD. Um, and my experience, I mean, I, I don't know that I would have the career that I have if I, I didn't have such a progressive uh, 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 unsupportive husband who, um, you know, we are all equal, but this is a partnership and um, one doesn't have to uh, deem the other person's light uh, in order to keep things working as they should. So having a supporting cast, like they say, <laughs> to whether it is me for him or him for me is is everything. And uh, people shouldn't have to choose uh, between that which they really believe is their purpose because of somebody who is intimidated by what could be or someone who wants them to be present the way they want them to be um, or someone who thinks they should lead a life the way they want that life to be led. I think everybody has a purpose and um, our role as partners is to support each other and to really be the, the ones that are fanning the fire into that person to uh, continue their biggest pursuits and never stop until they achieve it. Um, I recognize that this is not the case. I see it in, 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 in marriages uh, around me. I, I, I've grown up uh, seeing that. Um, I mean, it's, it's a reality, especially on the continent um, where 
girls are told don't do that <laughs> hence miss geek uh, you know this is something that boys do it's the same mindset that carries into many homes um I, i just hope that every one of us um has a as a partner that um that is supportive so <sighs> I, i i don't even know how much more i can say um besides that everyone deserves um to be to have joy and you can't have joy when you have people encroaching on the things that you want to do and standing in your way um so we shouldn't be the people that stand in the way of someone else's joy um and i think it's our responsibility to as much as we cultivate our own joy to ensure that we are bringing out the best of we're supporting the best out of our partners to get to do what brings us joy so for me to live in hotel rooms and planes and um have a husband who was there every step of the way um and never got in my way and did you know he does everything possible to even when i'm not thinking it he'll think about how to make things better around us it, it's special and it's really something that i wish for for everyone um i know it's achievable because i'm living it um and i hope that more of us can can be that that kind of support whether it is in a marriage or in a relationship that is just family or friends um i think we as people should be um agents of kindness that brings um out joy out of people i think that's the only way that we can we can um lead happier lives uh, collectively uh, rather than stand in the way of what could be when people achieve joy so that's my perspective on that i have so many questions to ask you um but obviously you have to go and look after your baby she's coming um, so i don't know what questions you want to ask okay okay let's go for it um you just talked about kindness right now and then in your writings i see you're very big on kindness but your perspective on kindness is that to be kind to people you have to be kind to yourself and find an inner peace and confidence in who you are is how you resonate that to other people and i want to ask you how have you found that for yourself how have i what how have you found that kindness for yourself and how have you been able to show it to yourself um i mean my childhood was not easy and um I found myself being an angry teenager and I carried the weight of so much of that in my early 20s. Um and you know life was hard. <laughs> and I was so hard on myself and I think it wasn't until um uh someone showed me such kindness. Um by seeing my potential that i didn't see in myself um and 
helped me realize that I um, everything that I need to be to get to where I want to go. Um, and she uh, made me believe that I could, you know, I, I always told her that I want to be, to work in international development. And, you know, this is after she had denied me a job. <laughs> but she saw <laughs> that potential and um, helped me out and brought me such a fantastic recommendation for grad school. And I applied to these grad school, graduate, uh, graduate programs, and I got into, into some of them. And I went on to study. It's just life began when this woman showed me kindness and she didn't have to. And, um, and she was somebody that was considered to be a hard person and hard on people, but that hardness was, you know, attracted me to her. Uh, and it wasn't hard. She just had high standards of performance. Like, right, you know, you just do what you need to be doing for the organization. Um, but that kindness stayed with me and I could never repay her for that. But I thought that I can pay it forward by proving to myself and proving to her that indeed she believed in the right person and that I can actually do this. And um, at that point, I couldn't do whatever it is that I was doing, carrying the weight of anger for whatever it is that happened to me when I was a child or what things did to me, etc. So I had to lay all those burdens down. And I think forgiveness is an act of, is such a crucial act of kindness to yourself, to your soul, to your mind. Um, uh, and so life began to change for me when this woman saw me and believed in me, uh, which I think is one of the greatest acts of kindness that I've experienced. And since then, I've, uh, I strive to um, take any bad thoughts or feelings or envy or whatever it is out of my mind um, and focus on what is good. And um, I may passionately disagree with people and defend the things that I believe, but kindness is never lost on me. Um, I even when I snap at somebody, I even feel bad about <laughs> snapping, snapping at somebody. Uh, many times, uh, especially you know, in the corporate world, when you're alone in in technology and payments, you know, you're a lone voice uh, in many ways, and you therefore have to put your feet down and really just let people have it. <laughs> but it's oh, all yeah. for for the greater good um and ultimately people will see my heart and see that i mean well and will hopefully do what they need to do so the first act of kindness is forgiveness was forgiveness to see people to see the good in people to um to just strive and i think when you find peace and when you find joy and when you uh love uh, there's just no room for anything else. So the more that I came into myself um, as a result of that act of kindness uh, and I started living life on my terms and doing things that I love and dreaming in spite of 
um, whatever it is that people thought I was being too ambitious, uh, going on to pursue what I wanted to pursue, putting out what I want to do. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me that I can do something that is continent-wide now, uh, having put that out into the universe about four years ago. Um, I think these things don't happen. They don't just happen. I think they happen um, when... Um, I mean, I think they happen when they happen uh, as a result of what is going on within you. So if you, if inside you, uh, you truly are striving to live with the purest of hearts and the kindness, I think the universe returns all of that. Um, the more you bless people, the more you're blessed. The more you are kind to people, the more uh, prayers go up for you than curses. You know, there's just, you know, that karma, that thought of karma that that is out there. I just... Uh, I don't, uh, I don't, I don't want to be putting out bad um, to get bad. And so uh, whether it is running or it is spending time with my family or it is sleeping, which I love so much, or swimming, <laughs> uh, anything that I do to nourish my mind and, and uh, the giving that I do to help others keeps me going, uh, but it all really was ignited by that lady who saw me and uh, through her seeing me uh, showed me how many, just how kind my mother was, um, how she brings people together uh, in the family and um, uh, the work that her and her sister were doing. All of that, uh, I think, has uh, contributed to to the person that I am today today. and I really just can't imagine life where I choose not to be kind. I don't think that it would be a good one. So I'd rather be on this side of things and not uh, be on the other side. So uh, forgiveness helped me out. And the kindness of someone else, uh, I think, showed me the kindness around me. And uh, I really don't want to live any other way besides what I live like now. Hmm. So what's... <laughs> I feel like we're having a therapy session in this... Um, <laughs> which is a good thing. Which is a good thing. Um, I'd like to know your thoughts on paid maternity leave for women. On what? I'd like to know your thoughts on paid maternity leaves for women. You know, I was just thinking that maternity leave should be more than, it should be at least more than six months. Because they say that the first six months of a child matter the most. I think maternity leave should be at least six months. And I appreciate that it is paid. But if I had the option of, uh, having a longer maternity leave for half a pay or even no pay, I probably would take it. Then I would organize my life and make sure that I save up for it because it really is so important. Um, you know, for, I mean, there's, without mothers, there would be, I don't know, I mean, there would no be universe. Nothing, right? There no would be, universe. be no universe, right? <laughs> uh, but 
a present mother, uh, a kind mother, uh, just nurturing life is the most important job ever. And there shouldn't be a price on that. And I hate that. It's even a debate. I hate that, you know, someone can think that 12 weeks is enough for somebody to be off. And, you know, that's the formal sector. The informal sector, people have a child today and they're back to work tomorrow Mm. or, you know, so, uh, (laughs) and these are some of the things that drive me about inclusion is that once you have tools and access to things, you don't have to, like, there shouldn't be a debate. So maternity leave is everything. I hope that post-COVID, in fact, uh, amplifies the fact that we can do anything from wherever. Um, I appreciate Norway and Sweden, you know, the, the, the Nordic countries that have mm-hmm. substantial maternity leave. Yeah. And we should have the option to to extend it. Um, but it really is sad that it's such a commodity. The people who nurture life have to make a choice. Uh, and go back to work while their child is still in the very early stages of their life. They've not even covered the most important uh, six months. So, I, you know, I, uh, COVID uh, is help, has helped many of us who are expecting during these times to be home and to be present and not to be flying everywhere. Um, it's also going to probably, help, you know, it's, it will be working from home as as until vaccines are here, but it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way, especially that it is life. You're nurturing life. And those first years are so important. They should be, we should pay more attention to the, the info, you know, that sector that many majority of our people work. If I feel this way about maternity leave, I can't imagine what it's like for, you know, the women who work on the farm um, or work in a store or if they don't show up to work, they won't get paid. It just, it's just terrible. It's one of those rights that should be there. You know, I, I can't, I just can't imagine not having maternity leave. I can't imagine having to leave your child and go to work a week later or the following day to make money. It's just sad. So it's a, it's a huge question, but it, you know, maternity leave is a luxury of the formal sector, which is so small. I mean, in many of our countries, it's 10% that are paid a salary, 10, 20, 30%. So about the rest that don't have that salary and therefore cannot take maternity leave. It's just, it's, we have to change these things. But, you know, you pick one battle at a time, but I think becoming a mother has amplified why this, we really have got to formalize. And uh, uh, if wages are digitized, perhaps some kind of maternity leave can be tied to it. Um, 
we have to digitize. You see, digitization brings these things to front and center. And I know that there's no mom that won't want some time off. So the lack of uh, transparency into uh, how people are paid is part of why these things continue, you know. So the more digitization happens, the more responsibility comes with the transparency that we're able to see. Um, It's a right that everyone should have. So 10% of us having maternity leave is unfair. It it needs to be 100% of women enjoying some time off to heal and to nurture their child, regardless of what they do. Um, Thank you very much, Lisa, for coming to the podcast. It's been a very deep and thoughtful conversation. And I'm very happy that you're able to make time for this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I know we've been all over the place, but we can continue <laughs> that's, that's the how I want the podcast to be. That's how I want the podcast <laughs> to be. And I think this has been a brilliant piece. Thank you very much. All right. You're welcome. Good luck editing. All right. Bye. <laughs> bye. Okay.